Okay, let's uh, begin. First of all, just to connect it with what we were talking about the other night, which is we were talking about papancha, the three things which we basically obsess about, think about continuously, circulate, proliferate, whatever translation of this word papancha. It's a kind of defies a one-word English translation, but it means to spread out in all sorts of directions, our thought processes, then these three things are the things that we proliferate. We proliferate craving. And this is what I was talking about the other night. We proliferate self. And we proliferate around views, opinions, or outlooks about the world. Just to touch back on the issue of craving for a second. It's strange that the word craving simply doesn't in English contain the same degree of pathos that the word tanha does in Pali, which is the scriptural language of the early Buddhist scriptures. The word tanha in Pali really contains this enormous amount of pathos around the human condition the human condition that is driven by this insatiable craving, this craving for things, the craving to be, the craving not to be, and how these are all intermixed, these different forms of craving that we have. Then, something I didn't really get time to mention, then set in place by clinging, by holding on to. by stoking our fires, keeping our fires of greed, aversion and delusion going in clinging to views about ourselves in particular, which is what I'm going to come to this evening. The word upadana also has many different usages in the Pali texts. This word, which means clinging, um, can mean entrapment, means also grasping as well. And there's many descriptions within the text themselves of, for example, ways of trapping monkeys, which they used to do in ancient India. And one way of trapping a monkey was to bury a bowl in the ground which had a thin neck uh, and place fruit in the bowl. And what happened was the monkey would come along, put its paw down the narrow neck, grab whatever was at the bottom of it, now it was stuck because it wouldn't let go what was at the bottom but all it had to do to get away was release what it was holding. Um, and I think this is a wonderful metaphor for human entrapment. <laughs> yeah. Being trapped by not letting go. Not letting go of what, what we have often but views and opinions um, particularly views and opinions about ourselves and being entrapped by that whole situation. So we find ourselves in a very claustrophobic world, a world of complete entrapment. Occasionally we get glimpses of freedom through the bars of our cage. Just every so often we glimpse a little bit of freedom through the bars of our cage, but mostly we're surrounded. The bars are self-made, though, and this is what the Buddha is really saying. The self-made through craving and clinging to 
various things. And the only thing we can do is examine within our lives this repetitive craving coming up again and again and again. Now, the exercise we've been doing today, just to refer to that, the kind of sweeping through the body, watching sensations, um, watching them arise, watching them pass away, sweeping back up the body, seeing if they're the same, if they've changed or not. Well, the whole point about this particular method, if you want to call it a method, is to loosen the bond between feeling, the Vedana, what you're actually observing, and craving, the automatic tendency to move towards something if it's pleasant and to move away from it if it's unpleasant. So what we end up doing if we move towards something that's pleasant, we want to grasp it, hold it, make it static. Um, If it's the opposite, if it's something unpleasant, then we are trying to avoid it at all costs. We're trying to move away from it as quickly as possible. I don't know if any of you caught, for example, yourself wanting to scratch something. You know, if you discover an itch, automatically the hand reaches out to want to scratch it. Automatically there's a little bit of discomfort. There is the desire to avoid it. If there's a pleasant state of mind that arises, uh, say a calm state of mind or, I don't know, some visual pyrotechnics that takes place as you sit there... um, you often want to hold on to that you know, because that's pleasant. You know, all this murky stuff about all the you know, business of your own mind arising, forget that. Let's say with the pyrotechnics. <laughs> it's far easier. So what we're doing here is starting to lessen the bond between feeling, the arising of feeling, which we can do nothing about. If something strikes us as pleasant or unpleasant, that's end of story. We can't do anything about it. If I put my hand, because of the way I'm wired, onto a hot plate, I'm going to generally find it unpleasant unless I'm a masochist. <laughs> you know, simply because of the way I'm wired here. So, craving is one of the issues around which we proliferate. You know, this is the stuff of much of the restlessness that we see arising and passing away in our thought processes. However, there is one major issue, and this is what the Buddha has to say about it. It's a very short quote. What is dukkha? What is suffering? If you want to use the old-fashioned translation, what is dukkha? This is mine, this I am, this is myself. That is dukkha. Pretty pithy, isn't it? Yeah, says it right, yeah, it goes right to the heart of it. I'll just read it again. What is dukkha? This is mine, this I am, this is myself. That is dukkha. So the self, as you can probably gather, is a little bit of a problem. And before I start on kind of talking about what the Buddha has to say about this notion of the self... Let's just think a a moment about what it means to be a self in this world, just ordinarily. Have you noticed how extraordinarily difficult it is being a self, being a constant self? It's an extraordinarily difficult thing. Keeping our, literally, we say keeping ourself together. 
If I had, it works very well in English, it doesn't work so well in other languages, but English is beautiful for this. If I had a board here where I'd write the first person pronoun on the board, I, doesn't it look so lonely? (laughs) I call it the Royal Inus. Because it you know, also has this arrogance attached to it often. But it's a very lonely, cut-off phenomena. Cut off from others and often cut off from the world. It considers itself that I as the I of identity. Yeah? I is almost like the capital I for identity. And trying to maintain some kind of identity... Every time we try to create an identity for ourselves, it's like trying to freeze-frame ourselves. It's like we are a flux and we're trying to freeze-frame ourselves. There is fluidity and now we're trying to create stasis. We're trying to create some kind of identical person who doesn't change. So the I is what keeps us cut off from the world. It keeps us cut off from others. And it often keeps us cut off from ourselves by trying to be this I. By trying to keep ourselves together in terms of often things like professional identities, roles that we take on. We are in many senses nothing other than a list, for example, of our name, our gender, our profession, our enthusiasms and our relationships. And if we kind of list these all together, that's me. Here I am. This is me. However, anything we care to say about any of those things is sometimes not true. I am, followed by whatever marks the spot after that, often isn't true. Because sometimes you're not, whatever it might be. I am X, I am Y. Sometimes you're not X, sometimes you're not Y. These change. Now, the Buddha was trying to get us to see that rather than being, and this was partly in response to the question that rose last night, rather than being some self-sufficient identity, unchanging entity that we were a changing fluid set of possibilities literally the possibilities if you want to take the kind of nature of the mind is demon or angel you take your choice we decide which way we go we actually have that full range that full spectrum of possibilities within our minds within the unwholesome dimensions of the mind and with the wholesome dimensions of the mind. The I itself often is, as once was remarked by the philosopher Wittgenstein, a product of language. He said in his philosophical investigations once um, that he had the feeling that the self was merely a grammatical error. (laughs) simply because we have predicates of experience uh, to which we attach them to something called an I. I am happy. I am sad. I am elated. I am depressed. 
Yeah. It's just the exigences of language to form a sentence in English and most European languages that we have to have the subject and then the predicate. Yeah. And then we start believing in that well-formed sentence. We keep constantly reiterating that. The philosopher David Hume had similar doubts about the, you know, the solidity of this sense of I. He said, every time I look inside myself and myself, all I find are bundles of perceptions, you know, with nothing holding them together. So although the Buddha might have said this first, it's something that has kind of bothered thinkers And the Buddha is a very practical thinker, so this is meant to have a practical outcome, not just a philosophical outcome, has bothered thinkers for centuries. Now, the Buddha himself really is trying to make us aware that we are this open set of possibilities, and that if we cultivate in particular ways, for example, the sorts of things that we're doing over this week, then we can change that I. That I is not a fixed phenomena. He's actually interested in how we work, how we operate, how this thing which we call self actually functions, rather than take it as the fact that there is this solid entity. Now, human beings, most of us, are desperately in search of identity, desperately in search for something static. We fall in love at a very early stage um, or fall into, perhaps into some kind of strange relationship with who we think we are. This is, in a sense, the fundamental narcissism that underlies a lot of our behavior. We stare into the mirrors of ourselves. The French... Psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan was deeply suspicious about the notion of the eye. He called it a foreign implant (laughs) that was planted in you at a very early stage in human development um, and actually came, he thought, from something which he called the mirror stage. Now, I don't want to go into too much, but he actually does make something rather amusing out of this because he, in a paper which was very influential, actually, in the psychoanalytic world, um, called the mirror stage paper, he actually makes a joke because he actually says that apes, apes are actually more intelligent than humans. You know, what happens with an ape when you hand an ape a mirror? The ape goes like this. <laughs> and after it's done that, after it's looked behind the mirror, it loses all interest. You know where this is going, don't you? <laughs> because human beings, when they get a mirror... forever (laughs) it becomes something which uh, in many ways is is a modern rendition of the myth of Narcissus of the narcissism which underlies a lot of our human behaviour and remember the myth of Narcissus this was very influential in the Middle, Middle Ages in particular and there are many different versions of it but one version of it was and I think this is very this is a very indicative version for the modern era, is about the young man who falls in love with his own image in the pond, in the the lake. He sees his image in the lake and he falls in love with this image of this beautiful young man and falls in and drowns. 
literally this in many ways is what the Buddha is really indicating is that we're drowning in ourselves often now he doesn't use the word ego but this is really the ego which is being spoken about there is no word in in ancient Indian languages for the word ego but there is plenty of words which describe the self he often refers to the self as being like a post which is nailed into the ground to which a dog is tied and all the dog can do is go round and round and round that self. Yeah, and this is what we do in some tenses, continuously circling around ourselves. Yeah, so there's quite a number of images to play with here, of, you know, of drowning in ourselves, running around ourselves, almost as if there is no room in the world, really, for genuine contact with others, for genuine compassion to arise for genuine friendliness to arise because the self dominates our world view. It dominates how we see things. It's literally that which we see through. It's the, literally the eye of the beholder and the eye here being the first person pronoun. So we're viewing the world through the self. We're viewing others through the self. Now the self, if it's an entity... Um, as perhaps many of us almost intrinsically feel, there is something, some unchanging core within us which constitutes my real self, then also there is that within others. And actually the job of this self is to manipulate those other selves who are not really selves because they're objects for this self. If I am the self, you become the object. If you are an entity and I am an entity, this entity can manipulate that entity. This is the negative side of it, this is the ethical side of it, that we get into relationships of power, we get into relationships and hierarchies of manipulation through this. So the Buddha is really trying to get us to loosen our relationship around this notion of the self by getting us to see through introspection, through actually beginning to see the operations of this, in what we're doing here, in meditative practice, that there is no solid sense running through our experience. There is no solid, unchanging phenomena underlying all of this experience. Now, when I was studying in India, I, again, was studying with a particular teacher who was one of Dalai Lama's teachers, and we had to do this job of this meditation experiment, which went on for weeks of trying to find ourselves. And we went down as far as things like, was yourself in a hair follicle? Was yourself your big toe? Was yourself your intestines? Was yourself this? And we went on day after day after day doing this. And I must admit, I have to hold up my hand and say, I got rather irritated at one point (laughs) about this and said to him, why are we doing this? And he said, well, you know, we're just trying to find the self. But, but we keep on doing it. I think I've got the point <laughs> after we did this. And I kind of probed him and kept probing, why are we doing this? And he said, Tibetans are very pragmatic. He said, well, you know what it's like when you've lost your wallet or your purse? Lost your wallet or your purse? <laughs> almost stick to the point he said well you know what you like when you've lost your wallet or your purse you look in every possible place it might be (laughs) 
until you eventually find out you've lost it. <laughs> and this is what we were actually engaged in. We were actually trying to f- discover that there was no fixed entity there at all to be discovered in our experience whatsoever. So the self in many ways is, is an invention of the mind. It's an invention of language. It's something which is useful. If you ever pick up, as some of you might do, if you ever pick up Buddhist texts you know, and read the Buddha's discourses, the Buddha still refers to himself as I. You know, he does not you know, go into some strange convoluted language where he's using you know, one does or you know, you know, uh, you know, this is simply happening or whatever. He doesn't do that. He just uses normal language. However, the difference being that there is not the belief in the solid sense of some kind of entity behind that. So, what he does is he tries to explore the way this self is as a process. Now, you've heard me say on a couple of nights already that the self is process, it is verb. You are a verb, much more than a noun. Live your verb form rather than try to live a noun form. Um, And the world opens up in a completely different way. Now, to really make this point, the Buddha tries to get us to see that actually any meaningful talk about a a self, which is usually, usually considered to be unitary, is based on actual the working together of fundamental processes. And so the first one he identifies, of course, is the body, the physical form. Any meaningful talk about what it means to be a self perhaps has to include talk about a certain recognisable physical form. However, I don't think any of us perhaps would be gulled into thinking that the physical, our physical form is ourself. And if you are, well, actually you're in for a lot of dukkha. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of dukkha involved in this. Um, for one thing, one of the things that the Buddha really tries to stress, if there is a genuine self, an unchanging entity, something like a homunculus in the head controlling, you know, like the, the crane driver in the crane, um, controlling everything, then we'll be able to control phenomena such as the body. And that's one thing that's obviously out of our control altogether. In fact, we feel kind of helpless when the body does things like get sick, when it ages, when it moves towards its final end, towards death. There is nothing that we can do about this. There is no control that we have over these phenomena. We can do our best to kind of stop the ravages of time wearing us so much, but ultimately in the end we can't bring about any control over the final outcome. You know, this is our mortality. This is part of our existentiality. So the self, if it was the body, which I don't think many of us probably would think it is, is completely outside of our control. It's not really a candidate here. And if we do grasp after it, we are definitely, definitely, as I say, in for a lot of dukkha here. The second candidate is actually what we've been looking at. Vedana, feeling. Feeling is one of these phenomena. 
we perhaps think that our likes and our dislikes, the things that we find pleasant and the things that we find unpleasant, might be ourself. We certainly build a lot of emotional stories on basic likes and dislikes. A lot of our world is, is built around our simple predilections. I like this, I don't like that. I'm a person who likes this. I am, notice, in that sentence. I am a person that likes this. I am a person that doesn't like this. I am a person that's good at this. I am a person who's not good at this. So I am is right there at the heart of this questioning that we're engaging in. And when we start to look at the notion of Vedana, one of the things that we notice, and perhaps you've picked up today, is that it's always changing. The Vedana always changes. The intensity of the Vedana changes, and sometimes it even changes completely from being something which is unpleasant to being something which is pleasant, to even being something which is completely neutral, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. So Vedana is not under our control. We cannot manipulate and control the Vedana. It just comes to us. This is how experience strikes us as pleasant, unpleasant or neither and we're always going through that really covers everything pleasant, unpleasant, neither that's our experience it's pretty shocking to think of it it's so pared down isn't it that's how experience comes to us pleasant, unpleasant, neither and it's doing this all the time both mentally and physically we look at the phenomena of the body we really begin to see and observe it in the phenomena of the body but we can also see it arising in relationship to our thought processes. We have pleasant thoughts, unpleasant thoughts, and we have thoughts which are really just there, which have no kind of feeling tone to them whatsoever, and they're just running through. And are these self? Buddha is saying, no, they're not. They are just running through. They're just passing through. The pleasant, the unpleasantness, in relationship to whatever it is, is something which is changing. It's always a changing phenomenon. This is the kind of theme behind what the Buddha is trying to get us to see, that everything is changing and we are no different from the world. The world is a process and the self is a process and this seemingly unitary self is made up of these particular processes which I'm outlining at the moment. Now, it gets much more complicated in, in further Buddhist psychology when you take it in, but this is the most basic element. Then there's the interesting one, which is what is known as sanya, perception discrimination. Yeah. Sanya is a way of knowing the world. What's involved particularly in this notion of perception in Buddhist thought is the idea of taking something seeing or perceiving something, marking it in some way for recognition. What's the most common way that we mark things for recognition? Language. Language is pretty useless without one fundamental other dimension to this, which is memory. The ability to remember a piece of language being associated with a particular phenomena. Without memory, we we wouldn't be able to use language in that way. It's what makes language iterable is the fact that we can actually mark things and recognize it and you know, recognize it in that moment. However, memory is also implicated fundamentally 
of course, in what it means to be a self. What gives us the illusion of being a constant phenomena over time is memory. That, That I can remember, for example, aspects of my early childhood, aspects of my adolescence, Aspects, you know, of my 20s and 30s and so on and so forth, up to the age I am now, is what makes me think there is some constant running through my experience. Of course, degenerative brain diseases, um, in the onset of degenerative brain diseases, one of the things obviously that happens is the loss of memory. People actually don't know who they are. with something like Alzheimer's. Literally, they do not know who they are because their memory has gone. That ability to hold themselves together as an entity in memory is no longer present. Now, this is why, in fact, the Buddha is not recommending us to become (laughs) no-selves. You know, it would be actually recommending us to become somebody like, you know, somebody that's suffering from Alzheimer's. That is not what the Buddha is recommending. What he's recommending is to understand how this process of selfing works so that we can hold it in a completely different manner, so that we're not so attached, desperately clinging to who we think we are. So memory itself is one of the key components of all of our perceptual activities, including the perceptual activity which constitutes who we are, who we think we are. Actually, that's a very interesting phrase because we're not who we think we are most of the time. The thought itself is, again, a passing phenomenon to which we try to attach ourselves and cling to ourselves to identify who we are. Now, I'm running through these very quickly because there's a lot more involved in them, but I just really want to give you the, you know, the, a, a, a kind of picture of how the Buddha views the self. The, third, the fourth phenomena that goes to make it up is all of our predilections, all of our habit patterns that are there. You know, habits that come and we keep on repeating However, we don't really repeat identically. We keep on repeating. We keep repeating similar patterns you know, of fears, similar patterns of anxiety, similar patterns of likes and dislikes, similar patterns. Again, it's a frightening phenomenon, isn't it? To think, actually, is there much else other than the bundles of our habit patterns here? Because what the Buddha really is recommending and something that when we begin to discover is, of course, these habit patterns when we start to look at the nature of the mind, the repetitive nature of much of our thought process, the repetitive nature of much of our fears and our anxieties and worries and the sorts of things that arise again and again and again in the mind is that actually we don't have to be like that. The German poet Rilke once remarked, about the habit that moved in and didn't leave. This is what actually happens to us. Habits move in to us, uh, which might have been useful at some particular juncture in our life, but now have become a liability. 
Fear is good to have in some places. If I see a number 57 bus bearing down on me, it might be a good idea to jump out the way. So fear is a good idea. However, if I'm constantly in fear, you know, I kind of the mechanism, the fear mechanism is switched on, uh, then it's being applied in all sorts of areas where it's no longer useful. You know, same with other mental states and mental attitudes that we take. They become habit patterns that can't be switched off. Even good habits are ways of not thinking, ways of not engaging with things. You know, they're kind of like rails down which we run, you know, not deviating much. You know, if you're on rails, you can't deviate. You know. These are the patterns down which the mind run, even in terms of our positive habit patterns. So there is no freedom in habit either good or bad, is what the Buddha is really trying to get us to see. So habits simply are reactive. They're patterns which keep on reasserting themselves in similar situations. Now the Buddha, again, through the meditative procedures which you engage in, is trying to get us to see that once we start to drop some of these habit patterns, and particularly the negative ones to start with, and even these so-called good habits eventually, that we end up in a far more responsive and engaged position with life. Yeah. Actually, when we're engaged in habit, there isn't a lot of life there. You know, we're kind of not really there for life. It's just happening, that's all. And we're just reacting to it. We're not really engaged with it deeply. And so what the Buddha is really encouraging us to do is engage fully with life, to become responsive, to become sensitized to it, so that we can move with life's vicissitudes, that we can move with the way it fluctuates, as opposed to having a set brace of habits which we keep on applying to various aspects of life. Now, not all of these, as I say, are necessarily bad. However, they are not full engagement. We're not really showing up for the party. Yeah. We're not really showing up for what is occurring to us in life. And then, finally, there is consciousness. Yeah. Consciousness is the final factor. So we have form, physical form, Feelings, perceptions, habits or formations as it's often called, and then consciousness. And consciousness itself is not a thing in Buddhism. Uh, this is, was one of the early discoveries of Buddhist psychology was that consciousness was a phenomenon that arose in relation to an object. It had to have an intentional object to be. You know, so in other words, world and consciousness are coextensive. They rise together, always. So actually, we live many, many different worlds you know, each day. And they're fluctuating. They depend on you know, this consciousness that arises with eye consciousness, with ear consciousness, with nose, with mental sense consciousness. And actually, in Buddhist psychology, they delineate 121 fluctuating forms of consciousness. You know? So that's as complex as it gets. Yeah. 121 different forms of consciousness are rising and passing away with different phenomena yeah, and with different mental factors attached to them. 
As uh, one of the great Buddhist thinkers of the 5th century, somebody called Buddha Gosa, once remarked, he says, consciousness is like a king. It always arrives with a huge retinue. So it always shows up with a load of other stuff. Much of it habit. Much of it ways, if you like, of pre-perceiving things. We've already perceived them before we've seen them. We already, in some sense, know. So consciousness is simply that knowing that goes together with actually all of the other factors. Now, none of these factors individually are self. I haven't gone into the arguments that he puts across as to why they are, but the most basic one is, A, they're changing, and B, they're not under our control. They're simply not under our control whatsoever. But they're always changing. So each of these five factors, which I've outlined, are changing. They're changing. So we think we have a unitary self, but even any seemingly meaningful talk about a unitary self comes down to these five processes. And these five processes can be broken up into even finer processes, which is exactly what later Buddhist psychology does, breaks them up even further. So that even if we try to attach ourselves to any one of these five, they can be further broken into smaller and smaller and smaller processes. So we are one vast process. Now, as I said the other night, this can be terrifying, but it also can be liberating. This can be terrifying and liberating both at the same time. We are many selves in a day. Even that picture I gave you of the rising and falling through those six states of existence, the six realms of existence, these are six different selves arising in a day. The animal self, the hellish self, the arrogant deva-like self, the kind of active trying to um, achieve something self, and then there of course is the human self, which occasionally we visit. We make fleeting visits to compassion and wisdom, but we don't dwell there for very long. Now, the Buddha is really speaking about as becoming not no-self. There's a lot of danger in that language, the idea of no-self. Talking to somebody with a fragile sense of identity, fragile sense of self, in the first place, this could be very, very unsettling to talk about no-self. What we're trying to see is what is not-self, and none of these processes constitute this unchanging phenomena of a self. Now, why is all of this important? Well, it's the self which clings. It's the self which craves. It's the self which doesn't engage, as I indicated at the beginning of this talk this evening, with others. It doesn't really get into engagement with others. It becomes actually all about me. So much of even conversation is all about me. I came across, a number of years ago, I came across a lovely little cartoon, which again I've often used in this very hall as a very good illustration of how actually... um, Human beings are not very good at communicating because they're usually just talking about self. And this was a couple at a dinner table. Um, I think it must have been a dinner table because it had a candle in the middle. 
Um, and he's leaning across the table, and he's got about ten little squares, and above each of the bubbles in his head, each of the bubbles that arise above his head, it's got one word. It goes, me. (laughs) Me. 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 (laughs) You can do this in all sorts of different voices. (laughs) Anyway, about ten squares of me, like this, and the woman he's with... Um, he's listening intently to me, 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 me. And then he obviously finishes because he leans back in his chair in one of the squares and she leans across the table and the bubble, bubble above her head into it pops me. <laughs> and he goes, <"Ooh."> <laughs> <laughs> Says a lot about human relationships, doesn't it? Um, but without being cynical about it, I think what it's a very good illustration of, though, is, is how even our discourse is infected by the discourse of the self. My wants, my likes, my dislikes. You know, there is always the me being put forward. So much so, the me is often so dominant that there's very little room for you. Yeah. This is the ethical side of it. This is really what the Buddha... Is trying to get us to see. When there is me and there is you and there's very little room for you, then there's very little room for genuine compassion. There's very little room for genuine connectedness with the other. Literally, and I'll explore this a bit more in the final talk that I give on Friday evening, the word compassion in Pali is a word which is karuna. And it has elements within the Pali itself, within the original language, which indicate a turning outwards. That's a very nice idea, that you turn outwards and see the other person, rather than turn inwards, seeing only yourself and your own concerns and B, getting outside of yourself. There's a kind of state of, almost an ecstatic state about it. So compassion is literally a turning outwards and being outside of yourself towards the other. Whereas in our normal states, our selfing states, because now we no longer have a self, we have selfing, which is a very ugly word in English, but never mind. It's indicating that this process is often turned just really looking at itself. In a wonderful poem, some of you might know, it's one of Rilke's Duino elegies. He said, the human animal is a very strange animal. It's the eighth elegy. A very strange animal in that all other animals look out onto the open. The human animal, the human child, is the one that's turned round forever looking into itself often not connecting with the open, not connecting with what is there before it. Everything is filtered through self in this way. However, this path being a path which is ultimately aimed at selflessness, the selflessness of compassion, the selflessness of genuine connectedness, the selflessness of friendliness, and of joy for others, and of finally equanimity, is something that can be cultivated in our lives. 
it's cultivated through acts of compassion, beginning to start to think about others, to turn away from our own concerns, you know, to turn away from almost the narcissistic behavior that keeps us entrapped in our cages. So the Buddha is offering in his teaching and the practices that he recommends a very obvious way, I think, of getting outside of our cage, moving into the open, moving into connectedness, into the free air, the the air of freedom here, rather than being embedded in being simply a self with all of the problems that come with trying to be the self. So it might seem frightening, but ultimately it's a liberating phenomenon. If there was this fixed self, just to reiterate just a second, if there was this fixed self, there could not be change. There could be not change, there could be no change, there couldn't be the awakening that the Buddha refers to, that the teachings um, refer to. We could not wake up we could not move into the open in the way that he talks about. So self is a problem, and I think most of us know that self is a problem. Um, it affects or infects all of our relationships you know, when we heavily self in those relationships. It's also the, sore, it's also the locus for anxiety, fear, worry, all of these things are connected to and intimately related to ourself. Now, the third dimension to this is going to have to, again, be postponed till you, know, you get the, the end of the story and who did it. <laughs> or who didn't do it, in this case, <laughs> um, on Friday evening, um, when we'll pick up the final thing, which is this idea of views or opinions, and then we'll look at compassion and friendliness. And I, that's really where I want to leave you at the end of this week, with compassion and friendliness as kind of the message to take away. Okay, thank you, everybody. Okay. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.